We're starting a new series for a few weeks, six weeks or so, something like that. And uh, I've, I've called it Intersections. And I, I chose that for a reason. We just had, we just had our, friend, uh, our, our friend last couple of weeks, Jason Willoughby was here, and he was, he was sharing with us an outreach, uh, outreach workshop. And it was the kind of workshop that often he will do on a Friday night and a Saturday morning or into the afternoon. And we thought, you know, instead of having that, uh, that other time when some of the church will come and most of the church would miss, I thought, let's, let's, uh, they would miss out and not have the benefit of that. I said, look, let's take this as much as we can to where the church is. And uh, so we had Jason for, for these last two weeks, and he talked about how God will use us. In fact, that's God's plan. That's God's plan, plan A, and there is not a plan B. God will use us as his ambassadors for Christ to share the gospel with people around us. And he won't do it in some particular, canned, programmatic way necessarily. He will do it with the interactions and opportunities he always, already gives you, where your life intersects with people around you. I'll give you one example. One of the last things Jason did with us is he, he, um, he had us make a list, right? He had us make a list of people I know that I can pray for, people that need Jesus, or that I, I think these folks need Jesus. And uh, so I'm just going to start praying for these folks. And so we all made, the, we made those lists, and, and we, we even told them together. So we found out there was almost 1,500 names that just in five minutes we came up with. These are people we want to pray for concerning faith in Christ. And one of you had your list. You sent me a text on Monday, day after that we do this. You send me a text and a picture because you say, I had my list out on my desk. And one of my coworkers comes by and says, what's that list and why am I on it? <laughs> Uh-oh. Now you're thinking, awkward moment. No. No, that's an intersection. That's an intersection of your faith and the life of another, your life and another's life, and they come together. And so she just explained, well, we had this thing in church where, where uh, we, we made a list of, of, of people that, that, that I want to pray for, people that I want to pray for who would know Jesus as Savior like I do. And as they talked a little bit more, she said, we didn't quite get to the question, which is okay. This is an intersection, and we'll see how that happens. But, but that uh, she was moved to tears that one of her coworkers would care about her and would be, be concerned for her and be praying for her. That touched her. It, was a, it, it wasn't an awkward, difficult moment. It was a tender, tender, sweet moment. An intersection. God gives us all kind of intersections into the lives of others where our life in its own rhythms comes into contact and intersection with other people's lives and where they're at. And so what I wanted to do for a few weeks is I want to just take some of those passages of Scripture. Often we will go through a book at a time. We'll go through kind of section by section, work our way through a Bible book. We're going to do that starting, uh, st- Starting in December, we're going to work through the book of Matthew from Christmas around through Easter time. But for a couple of weeks here, we're just going to take this passage and that passage and another one, and we're going to look at how they model this idea of intersections, where in the normal occurrences of life, there's an eternal intersection. There's an opportunity for the gospel. 
And how does that work out? We're going to see how that happens with Jesus. We're going to see that, how that happens with others in the Bible, the, the Apostle Paul and others. So, so um, in these intersections, as they come week by week, I want you to just think about this. We're going to look at this. What do we learn about our, our God from this? But also, what, what, what do we learn about how we also would be his ambassadors to the people that our lives intersect with, okay? So that's the idea behind intersections. This isn't a traffic study, Han. This isn't a, uh, Han Lee is a traffic engineer. He has a great business at that, and it's been a help to us. That's why I mentioned Han. Sorry, Han. But um, um, uh, this isn't about uh, fighting traffic on the way to work and getting all upset and uptight about it. This is about how, how, how does my life intersect with another, and how would I be Christ's messenger, Christ's ambassador, there. So, I uh, we'll want you to turn with me, or I invite you to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 888, I think. So try that page first, and if that's not the right page, we'll keep looking for John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And this is a familiar passage to some of us. It's, a, it's the passage where Jesus meets a woman at the well in Samaria. And there's just some details along the way. What I want to do first, I want to rehearse the story. I want to read through it and just notice along the way something about Jesus. There'll be several different pieces where we're going to see something about Jesus here. So I want us to notice those as we go. Let's just begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so attention is coming upon him. The spotlight is now shining on Jesus there in Judea. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, often that's noted in the story. Uh, he had to go through Samaria when the normal route from Judea to Galilee for a Jew was to take the, take the Jericho Road down to the Jordan, cross over the Jordan, go up what was called Perea, which was on the far side of the Jordan, east of Jordan, to bypass this whole area of Samaria and then come back around in across the Jordan again and come into Galilee. Or go right along maybe the west side of the Jordan. You know when you travel in Israel today, you do some of the same thing. If you don't want to go through the West Bank, and the West Bank is kind of like their Samaria, you don't want to go through the West Bank, then you're going to have to go around. And uh, you can either go all the way out to the coast and up, or you can go around and uh, along the Jordan and on up into Galilee. So, most Jews would avoid Samaria because the Jews didn't get along with the Samaritans. And there's a whole historical background to that that I'm not going to go into this morning. But this is surprising. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And, well, he didn't, except Jesus had an appointment. There's somebody that he's going to meet there. And I'm reminded that of Jesus. Jesus wasn't passive. Jesus didn't just go about the stuff of life. Jesus is seeking. In fact, Luke 19 says, He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so he knows this woman before he's met her. And he is going to put himself in a place, 
in the middle of the day when nobody else is around and she'll be there and he's going to, he's, he, he, he has an appointment with her. Jesus doesn't avoid the difficult people, the, um, un, the not so beautiful people. Jesus actually pursues her. He seeks out those who were lost. So Jesus comes seeking. And then verse 7. Okay, so there he is at the well, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And it's about the sixth hour, remember. That is not the time to draw water. Normally the ladies would come early in the morning because they would get the water that then they would use in the home through the morning hours. And and they want to go to the well and carry the water back while it's still fairly cool out. They're not going to wait till the middle of the day when the sun is high, and now seems like a great time to carry some big jugs of water. No. This woman however, comes to the well at around noontime. We're going to find out later why she's apparently not very well received by the other ladies. In fact, they probably give her a difficult time. They probably trouble her if she comes when they're there. So she probably comes intentionally at a time when she's not expecting anybody to be there. And then there's this rabbi. And there he sits. And he says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. How is it that you ask me for a drink? There is Jesus. He's at the well, and Jesus is thirsty. Again, his humanity. He comes into the world. He made this world. He made all of the water that's here. That water that's flowing, that's falling down out of the sky today that you just love. He made that. Jesus did that. Say thank you, Jesus, for the rain. Go ahead. Yeah. Jesus gave us that, aren't you? All right. It's a whole new perspective on rain, right? Yeah, we need that around here. Okay. And Jesus enters in. And he's in a dry, dusty land, and he's thirsty. Jesus entered into the needs of humanity. That's a microcosm of the whole reason he came. The greatest need of humanity, our sin, our our death, our mortality, condemnation. He entered into that need for us in our place. Here, he's just thirsty. That's just a small example of the much bigger picture. But all the stuff of humanity that you have endured and been afflicted by as well, Jesus has been there. Jesus has been in that. He bears our weaknesses. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So now Jesus uses a language. He's actually using an analogy. He's going to communicate. He's going to use the situation at hand to tell her something more. He he has living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, she's still being respectful. He's a rabbi. She's not being snarky. She's not being sarcastic. She's not being cynical, I don't think. It's interesting that John includes those that that sir, that that evidence of respect. She said, sir, she's definitely confused. You have, maybe he's been in the sun too long. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? What are you talking about? 
This is not just that the water's down there in the well and you need something to, some cup or something to scoop it out with. No, the water is down there in the well. You need to bring a bucket and a rope, something like that, that you would lower down and you'd scoop up some water and you'd draw it back up again. You say, well, wouldn't they just leave the rope and the bucket there and everybody could use it? Ah, you're thinking like an American. We might do that. Most places in the world, what would happen? Somebody would steal the rope. Somebody would steal the bucket. You don't leave anything like that out because it's valuable. And so you bring your rope and your bucket with you and you lower it down and Jesus forgot his rope. Jesus forgot his bucket. How is it that he's going to offer living water to her? But no, that's not the point at all. He's, he's talking about something very different from this well. And so the conversation goes on. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Oh, that's interesting. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. What, is your water better than our water? This is, this is water we got from Jacob himself. Jesus said to her, yeah, okay, it's pretty good water. It's Jacob's water. But everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus is not merely using some language that's just intended to confuse her. He's not only bridging from the present context of we're at a well and I'm thirsty into a spiritual conversation. He's also ringing bells from the past. He's echoing Jeremiah here. Where, where, where Jeremiah says, my children have committed two evils. They have, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, or holding tanks for water, which cannot hold water. The cistern, the wall of the cistern is cracked. All the water you put into it leaks out of it into the dry ground around it. The plaster was broken down, and you could pour water into the thing, and it would all go out. You'd lose all the water. It couldn't hold water. Jacob's well, he compares it to an empty cistern. Yeah, you're going to be thirsty again. This will not satisfy you. This life cannot satisfy you. It was meant to be better than this. Disappointed in life at times, welcome to life as this is. It isn't supposed to be like this. No, no, it's supposed to be a fountain of living water that wells up within us and overflows to others. And that's what Jesus is offering her. So he, he, is, he is developing a, an intentional spiritual analogy from the present, from the context there in the midst of, and she realizes that. He's not talking with some images that she hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. He reaches back into an image that's well-known, and she picks up on it. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Or maybe she thinks, okay, it's water and it'll just keep lasting. Maybe she thinks he's gonna, he knows a place where there's a spring. He's going to give her some land where she won't have to come, to, but there's a spring there and the water just bubbles up out of the ground. Maybe that's what she's thinking still. But Jesus is using this context. What? He's showing her something about God as well as herself. That's who Jesus is. Why did Jesus come? Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the very expression of God himself. Jesus is God translated into humanity. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. God has revealed himself. He revealed himself in the Old Testament. He revealed himself through Moses and the prophets. But he revealed himself most fully in his own Son. That's what Jesus is for us. Jesus, in essence, shows us God. Now, remember these things about Jesus because 
Well, I'm going to go somewhere with them, but we'll keep them up front so we don't forget them. Okay, so Jesus says, you're interested in, maybe you think I'm going to give you a plot of land, so you better have your husband come here so that we can close the deal. Jesus says to her in verse 16, go call your husband, come, come here. The woman answered him, it's going to be a problem. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one who you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow, now he's getting a little personal. How did he know that? Well, Jesus knows us. Jesus knows us, but what doesn't Jesus do here? He doesn't see that's right. You are a wicked woman. That's right. All of those things those other women say about you is true because you have had all these different men and you're living with a guy and he's not your husband. He could have gone on. He could have, he could have gone up one side and down the other and just wore her out. And he doesn't. In fact, what he says is, what you said is true. He says, you're speaking truth. He agrees with her as much as he can. He's not denying anything about sin, is he? He just, but he doesn't condemn her for it. If, if somebody has expressed to me their guilt, their shame, I don't need to, I don't need to run them down for it. And you know, we know what's in people, don't we? We know what's in people because we know what's in us. See, I don't know what's in people like Jesus knows what's in people, but he does know us. And isn't that good to know that even though he knows you, he does not condemn you. He says, my child, believe in me. For that too, believe in me. For that too, accept my cleansing. Don't come here into church and feel I am just not worth it. God could not be pleased with me. God could not look down at me as a loving father to his child because I'm not a good kid. I'm not a faithful child. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He urges you, trust his son for all of it. When God points out our sin, it's not, it's not to make us squirm and feel bad. When God points out our sin, it's so that we'll confess it and he can cleanse it from all unrighteousness. That's what Jesus does here. So, verse 19, she, he has her attention, even by pointing out those things about her that, that he shouldn't have known. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So i got a question for you. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, women, believe me. The, oh, well, before I get to Jesus' answer, what's she doing here? Why is she asking this question? Oh, this guy knows things he shouldn't know. Maybe she's deflecting away from herself. Now, don't want to talk about me. Let's talk about something else. Okay, you're religious. Let's talk about something religious. Let's go out here somewhere safe rather than about here. Maybe that's what she's doing. Maybe, she, maybe she, this is a, a genuine burning theological question for her, although I doubt it. Maybe what she's trying to find out, okay, you're a prophet. Are you with us or with them? Don't we do that? Don't we divide into all, ourselves with others into us and them? There's us and there's them. You're with us or you're with them. You're for us, you're against us. And we see that running rampant in our society today. Whether it's racially, whether it's politically, there's us and there's them. Whether it's economically, there's the rich and there's the others. And there's us and there's them. I think that's what she's doing here. She's, okay, you're a prophet. Okay, you got something, something authoritative, spiritual to say. Well, I'm going to decide if I'm going to listen to you or not based on are you with us 
or with them? Are you in the Samaritan camp or are you like those Jews down in Jerusalem that treat us so poorly? Jesus doesn't bite. Jesus transcends divisions. Look how he does that. He doesn't deny what is true, and yet he transcends it. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Yeah, it all starts with Moses, and the Samaritans believe that. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman says to him, well, I know, someday, someday, off in the future, that all's going to happen. That's going to get sorted out. Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, okay, you brought it up. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. But you see how he did that? He did that by transcending the divisions. He didn't bite. He didn't deny this or that, but he didn't take the argument. He didn't join. What's he going to do? Side with the Pharisees and the Sadducees down in Jerusalem? No, he's not in their camp. They need to come to his camp. And he's not in the Mount Gerizim Samaritan camp either. He's not going to falsely, as a Jewish rabbi, join in with the Samaritans here. She wouldn't be convinced of it either. She'd say, well, why are you saying that if you're a Jewish rabbi? He... He transcends that argument. He says, this is what you're thinking about, but this is what you should be thinking about. He brings her point up to what she really should be thinking about. He transcends our divisions. Our society can be divided. We should not. We should not. Yeah, people talk about black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter, blue lives matter. How about all souls matter? There we go. Let's change the conversation. Let's use that as a bridge to transcend those present divisions in that Jesus, Jesus wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Republican, folks. Jesus wasn't a, a member of the conservative Baptists. He wasn't. Jesus wasn't white like me. Hmm. He transcends all of these things that easily divide us in humanity. Finally then, verse 27, the disciples return. Oh my, this is, this is where trouble could start, Right? The disciples return and they start asking questions and they ruin everything. Well, fortunately, that doesn't happen. Look at verse 27. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, no, I'm sorry, that's not verse 27, that's verse 31. Here's verse 27. Just then the disciples came back. Uh Uh-oh. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, well, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Those were the questions that were in their head. They could have said, hey, what are you asking for? Why are you bothering the teacher? That's what we would have expected them to say. But they didn't. Whew. And they didn't say to Jesus, why are you talking to her? They're thinking that, but they didn't say it. Oh, there's, a, there's, there's the benefit of things not said, huh? The woman left her water jar and went away into town. Maybe the commotion of the disciples returning and their confusion, maybe that gives her an opportunity to slip away. And you say, ah, opportunity is gone. Just when we were almost there and the disciples come along and in the, in the, in the distraction or the extra people, she somehow slips away. Ah, Jesus isn't worried by that. He continues, he continues with who's, who he's with. Now he's with his disciples. They've got some learning to do too, so that's okay. So the woman left her water jar. She went to town. She's talking to the people in the town. 
come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can, can he really be the Christ? She, he told her he was, and she's wondering, could it really be true? Meanwhile, the disciples are urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat. So he starts again, right there at the intersection. They're talking about eating. Let's talk about eating. I have food to eat that you do not even know about. Disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What's he talking about? Has he got a protein bar? Has he got a cliff bar in his pocket? What's he talking about? He has food. By the way, we go to India, I'll have some cliff bars. I'll have some extra. I'll have food to eat that you don't know about. I never know when the next meal is going to come. So, we're, so, so the traveling missionary learned to be ready for that. But here, no, that's not what he's talking about. His food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months and then the harvest? Look. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest, of harvest they weren't looking for. They saw this Samaritan village as nothing more than a place to go and buy bread, a place to stop for lunch on the way to somewhere else. And yet there's this huge intersection happening right here, and the disciples don't even see it. He said, I'm going to send you to labor. You normally labor, and, and, and you expect a result there. I am going to send you to harvest where others have labored, and you're going to enter into their harvest because I'm the one that's in charge of this thing. I'm the one that's doing this. And yet he doesn't rebuke his disciples. He draws them right in. He says, look what God is doing. Now, as I mentioned, this passage tells us a lot about Jesus. And that's a good thing right there. If we went away with nothing else saying, look at our Jesus. Wow, that's good. That will feed our souls. Jesus seeks out the lost. He bore our weakness. He is the word who shows us God. He didn't come to condemn. He transcends our division. Jesus grows us into his work. That's our Jesus. It's important to notice these things about Jesus and what Jesus does, though, because he grows us into this work. He grows us into the same thing. He invites us into what he has been sent to do. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. He invites us to be his messengers, to seek and to save those who were lost. He invites us to seek. He invites us to reveal God. He invites us to join in others' weakness. He invites us to not condemn, but to invite toward forgiveness. He invites us to help people to transcend these divisions in God, the only God and Savior, to bring others into that same harvest. I want to look now at the same passage again. I'm not going to read through it again, but this is where your notes come in. I jotted these down so you could take them with. Out of this same intersection, this example, look what Jesus did what do we learn out of it for us then? If we would join him, if we would seek like him, if we would show something of God to others like him in the midst of these kind of intersections, it won't happen at Jacob's Well, probably, unless you're traveling soon. It might happen at a coffee shop. It might happen at a water cooler. It might happen at, just, it might happen at your desk when somebody sees your prayer list. I don't know when it's going to happen. But if we have the sunglasses off, if we have our eyes open, we'll we, we might see it as it's happening. We might be ready for it. We might be able to do something of what Jesus did. What does that look like? First of all, like Jesus seeks, Jesus doesn't avoid, Jesus had to go through Samaria, look for God's appointments. Don't be like the disciples, so task-oriented, so goal-oriented, so busy about the stuff that's before me that I've got to do that I don't have time. 
I may have shared once in the past when we were in Swaziland, and I worked the afternoon broadcast shift, and so we would gather a team of two or three guys total, so me and one or two others, and we'd pick them all up in this little, little small pickup. We'd run by the office in those old days to get these big, massive tapes, these boxes of, of pre-recorded broadcast tapes, reel-to-reel, We'd take out into the bush to the, where the transmitter station was, load them on the machines, and play them for that night's broadcast, and they'd also be used for the morning. Next afternoon, they'd bring out more tapes. And so we always had to stop by the office, and I would get so frustrated. We'd get to the office, and somebody wanted to ask me about this, somebody wanted to talk about this, somebody wanted to just say hi and even have tea. We don't have time for this. We're supposed to be out at the transmitter station at, at 2.30. I want to be on time. I've got, a, I've got this solid American task-oriented work ethic, and I want to be on time. And if, if we hang around here talking to people, we're never going to get there by 2.30. We're going to roll in at 2.40, 2.45, maybe 2.50. We're going to be late. I don't want to be late. I had to change my thinking. I didn't change my thinking about being late. I built in extra margin. I started out earlier. I told the guys, when, when, when we're going together, I want us to be on time, so let's start early. And that left us plenty of time when we'd stop by the office and meet all these other people that wanted to talk or ask, ask about or just visit, we had time for them. Do you build in some margin so that you've got time for God's appointments? We can be so busy about stuff that seems so important. They talk about something in leadership. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. How the urgent all crowds out those things that are important. And sometimes you've got to let the urgent stuff go in order to be able to focus on what actually is important. And sometimes the urgent is not. It just screams for your attention instead. Take some time that we notice the people around us. Look for God's appointment. Secondly, verse 7 to 9, asking for a drink of water. Ask for help. We typically think that we're there to help the people that we want to share Christ with and show Christ to. We're going to do something for them. We're going to help them. We're going to gather the students and, 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 and have a nice lunch for them. That's great. Or we're going we're gonna to come to somebody's house in the summer of service and we're going to serve them. We're going to do something for them. That's great. But I recently read a story. If, I think it was the Regsdales that first forwarded I saw it on Facebook. The Regsdales had forwarded it on. Some of our missionaries now in Europe. And um, this story was about... Um, the, a, a survey, some research was being done in the Arab world of how effective, how, how effective were the Western missionaries in this part of the Arab world, particularly in Somalia. And so they were, they were doing this research, asking a lot of questions out there among the work. And they asked a lot of questions, everything seems good, okay, so, so. And then they'd, then they'd try to ask specific questions about the Western missionaries' effectiveness and the people didn't really know how to respond. The local people weren't sure what to do with that. So we don't know what you expect of your missionaries. So we don't know how to tell you what makes one effective compared to the other or not, but we can tell you this. We can tell you which is the missionary that we love. And they kept hearing this. So finally, in one of those interviews, they pressed in further, who is this missionary that you love and why is it that you love this particular missionary? We keep hearing the same one over and over again. Why is it that that missionary is the one that you love? And the answer was because they have needed us. They have come to us, but not with all of their Western resources. They took what they had and they invested it in our community. And then when needs came up, and when one of their children was sick, and they needed to make a, a, a sudden trip back out of our area to a hospital, they didn't write home and ask for money from their friends back in America. 
they came to us and they asked us for help. And we were able to help them and we were able to gather around them and make sure that their child got the care that it needed. They needed us. And that bound hearts together. Don't be afraid, like Jesus here, don't be afraid to need something from the people around us. We uh, Americans want to be self-sufficient. We want to have our act together and be ready to help others who don't. Guess what? I've got news for you. You don't have your act together. Some of you, you're trying to hang by a thread there. You say, I just keep pushing this down, and then that springs up over there. We don't. And it's okay to need others. I'm quick to help. I don't want to be needed. No, I'm good. I'm fine. I've got it. But how can needing help from others, inviting someone else into your need, how might that open a bridge between your hearts that you may be able to share things that matter most? Ask for help. Thirdly, build a bridge. Look for spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual analogies. The, I'm not sure that the living water one will work for us. We're not drawing water out of wells as compared to a running stream, which is what living water often referred to. I'm not sure that that analogy will work in our environment today, but there are things that do. When you talk about sin, when you talk about death, well, the heartaches of life, this is because of sin. But what about an analogy like cancer? The same way that cancer eats away at a body because it, it's feeding itself, that's what sin is like. This whole salvation thing, this is like, what if I had a cure for cancer? And, and there's this cure, and, and all that's needed is for the person to take that medication, and they will be cured. In fact, it's a one time. If you take this medication, this is all you need to do. But they will not be cured unless they take the medication. You probably used an analogy of a gift before. That salvation from God is a free gift. It's freely extended, and yet it is not... It is not for everybody because not everybody receives it. It doesn't become yours unless it is received. Will you receive it? Will you believe it for yourself? There's a spiritual analogy in this table that we internalize, we take in. There's a spiritual analogy in baptism. Why do we do that whole weird thing? Because there's a burial under the water and there's a coming back up again into new life. Raised from the dead. In that same way, spiritually, we are raised in Christ already. There's an analogy there. Look for, I'm not asking you to use all mine, but look for comparisons. Look for bridges to get from where the conversation is now toward spiritual truth. Be able to confront sin without condemning. Are you a safe person? Am I a safe person that somebody could confess sin to? That somebody could confess brokenness to, and we're not going to point out all the reasons why it's their fault. We're not going to point out all the things they should have done. They've only done this. If they behaved better, they'd be okay because they can't behave better enough to be okay. So let's not tell them that. Let's be safe. You can be a safe person for somebody to share their guilt with. It isn't going to shock you. It isn't going to shame you. And if you take a good hard look at yourself, it doesn't have to. Because we're there too. We need the same salvation. We need the same Savior. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's... Well, I'm hesitant to go into examples here. But I'll share this. 
A few years ago, we, were, we, were, we had an evangelism booth at the church. We partnered with several other churches in the area, and we had this evangelism booth, and, and, it, and it was set up on the idea of optical illusions. And you have this optical illusion. It was deceptive. It looked like something, but it was actually something else. And we talked about, we used that as a bridge into seeing things as they really are rather than as they first appear. We used that as a spiritual analogy. And one of the things I remember was this one guy came along, and he was He was angry. And he was giving me a really hard time. And I wasn't sure at first. I didn't want to argue with him. I wasn't sure where to go with this. And I remembered something somebody had told me. And I said, I get the sense that you have been treated badly by a church in the past. And he said, well, yeah. I'm I'm sorry you had that experience. Would you like to tell me about it? Hearing about it. On behalf, as a Christian, could I, could I ask your forgiveness for what happened to you in the past? Don't, as Jason said to us last week, don't defend the indefensible. Acknowledge it as our own sin, our collective guilt as the church. The church is not perfect. Be safe. Be able to confront sin, even our own, without condemning some people talk about the hypocrisy in the church. How about if we redefine that? Well, that the hypocrisy, can that also sound like people who know they have a need for a Savior and go to church because that's where they hear about the Savior? And though their lives are not yet perfect, I bet they're comforted knowing that their imperfectness, their what you call hypocrisy, is actually forgiven. Now we've used hypocrisy to explain the gospel. You never know. I don't know if it'll work with the people your life's intersecting with, and, and, and the Spirit will guide that. But I'm amazed at what Jesus does here. For, also, don't get sidetracked. She asked those questions. Are you with us or are you with them? Uh, don't, you, you know, you don't have to answer every question. They might ask a question, okay, well, I was worried about this or that. You don't have to know the answer. You don't. I don't. I don't know the answer to every question. You don't know the answer to every question. Don't sweat it if you don't. Don't fake it if you don't. That's a good question. You know, I haven't thought about that. You know, I've thought about that too, and I, I'm really not sure, but... I'm going to look into that some more. That gives you an opportunity. Hey, remember that question you asked? That gives you an opportunity to have another conversation at some point in the future. If, if just, I don't know, that's, that's a good question. It may give you the opportunity to, to extend further to a, a higher level. I'm not sure about that, but this I know. Don't get sidetracked. You don't have to answer all of the questions, but you want to follow the loop back around. Let me give you an example. Somebody shared this with me recently. He, he's, his work gets him involved with a lot of different people. He'll, he'll be with this, one, this worker one day, that one another day. And, and he's with this guy, and the guy says, oh, so you, you go to church, huh? And uh, yeah, 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 I go to church pretty regular. How about you? He thought, well, this, this conversation's going somewhere. We can talk about church and why somebody would go to church. He says, no, I don't go to church. He said, according to your church, I'm condemned and going to hell for eternity, right? Okay, seems like this conversation's about over. Where do you go with that? How do you recover out of that? And that, by the way, is actually what it was designed to do. It was designed to be the shutdown. That was laid right out there with a little bit of hurt behind it, probably. That's what you people think about you, me, so listen, I'm shutting you down right now. You think you're better than me, you're going to heaven and I'm going to hell. If that's the way you look at things, we're done, conversation over. Maybe you could say, I thought about this for a while and the guy shared that with me. I thought, well, what would I do with that? It just occurred to me, yesterday, what I might do with that is, well, 
Actually, that's half right. What the Bible says is not that you're going to hell and I'm not. What the Bible says is that all of us are going to hell because all of us are guilty and sinful and broken and all of us need the same Savior. And that's why Jesus came. So now I've moved in with them, you see? Now I've moved in with them with the same need. Not that I'm better and they're bad and they've got a problem. That's often how we come across. And maybe it's not all our fault, but that's often how we're misunderstood and it gets in the way. Don't get sidetracked, but follow that loop back around. The Bible's true, not just because it's a book that I agree with, but it's because it's a message of salvation for you. Following that loop back around is the Bible has all of us lost, but that all of us can be saved. That's what Jesus did. He, he doesn't get sidetracked by the us or them question, but he follows that loop back around, kind of like a freeway exit, and gets back to where he wants to go. Finally, from verse 27 to 40, the disciples come in. There, it, it, this thing could all fall apart here. Jesus simply trusts what God is doing. Jesus trusts that God is working in the midst of all of this, and you and I will have conversations, and we don't know where this is going to go, but we know this. God is at work here. God has called us. God has given us this privilege. God has given us his spirit. God is at work here, and I won't save anybody. There's the good news of the day. How about that? You won't save anybody. There's not anybody that you work with. There's not any of your friends. There's not any of your neighbors that you're going to save. But God will. And you know, as weird as it seems, as, as poor of a plan as we might think it to be, he intends to use you and I to do it. So we can trust God that he's in this. We can trust God that he is working, and that gives me a whole kind of new boldness. That's John chapter 4. There's a woman at a well. How does it end? How does the story end, by the way? With those things at play, what happens? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, it says. That she had said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them there two days. There's some margin. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, a harvest the disciples never even saw coming. And God used that same Samaritan woman who was afraid to come to the well when the others would be there. Yeah, oh, he'll use you. He'll use me because God is at work. And I want that for us. I want more of that. I want more of that for you. I want us to have the privilege of sharing the precious gift that God has given us with the people around us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you that though we don't have it in ourselves, Father, your spirit is in us. You are with us. You are in this. And you are working so God, in the, under, under that confidence, Lord, with that boldness, knowing that this is you, not me, Lord, would you then give us boldness by your Spirit to have our eyes open, to be watching out, to not be afraid of our own needs and other people needing to help us, 
But Lord, to see in the midst of these things, in these intersections of our lives with others, to have our eyes open that we might see how you would work there. And Father, help us to be ready. Not to be clever, but Lord, just to be ready to see, to hear, and to speak up. In Jesus' name, amen.